For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is no hope. For why does one still hope for what he, what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. certainly good to see you here this afternoon. If you want to know who the committed members are, you come and count heads at 5 o'clock. If you want to know who the really committed members are, you come at 1 o'clock and count heads. Thank you for your priorities for being here this afternoon. I want to begin with the dictionary definition of hope, and I promise it does get better, but I want to start there as a foundation because the primary emphasis of the passage that was just read is the word hope. I know that you noticed that when Kevin read the passage. The word hope is defined by the dictionary goes like this, to entertain a wish for something with a reasonable expectation of receiving it, to be confident, to trust, to look forward to with confidence of fulfillment, and then the last partial definition is to expect with desire. Now that's the dictionary definition. The non-dictionary definition of hope goes like this, to believe that good things are going to happen. I think if you analyze Romans 8, 24, 25, you'll see that that definition certainly squares with the meaning of the passage. Now, in case you're interested, neurological researchers say that the left side of the human brain is cognitive. Most of you know this already, but let's review. What does that mean in cornbread English? What it means that the left side of your brain is the part that, that, that sifts through puzzles of, of logic. It is the analytical side of your brain, and if it's working right, then it's going to put all the pieces in, into place because that's the way it works. It's always going to put, you know, round pegs in round holes, square pegs in square holes, never square pegs in round holes. It, it makes decisions based on the facts, nothing but the facts. And, and the right side of the brain, of course, is the artistic or the intuitive side where decisions are made based on, on the basis of instincts, hunches, hopes, and dreams. And Every person who at least has everything working properly has hopefully a balance of those, those things in his or her mental faculty. Now, that doesn't mean that one or the other of those sides does not predominate because you and I know better. We all know left-brain people. We know right-brain people. In fact, I've often said I'm so left-brain I'd walk in circles if somebody didn't stop me. But we need both kinds in the kingdom of Christ. We need people that that have one domination or the other, and, and there's a perfect blending, I think, in the kingdom. Have you noticed, though, that we tend to trust people who make decisions based on the logical left side of the brain, people who rely on the facts, and our tendency is to distrust the intuitive dreamer? In fact, sometimes we'll even criticize folks like that, and we say they need to get their feet on the ground. And that's a little odd. Because when you think back over the history of this great country, you know that we depend day in and day out on things that were conceived by dreamers, by people who had a creative side to them, who, who used that intuitive side of their brain in such a way that they could conceive of things that you and I have never dreamed of, that we've never really thought about. And, and we're talking about things like even churches and schools that we have next door. Aren't you grateful that someone had that vision, that dream, that we can have a, a, a church school right here in Montgomery, Alabama? And sometimes that it's the result. The result is, is a book that somebody has written or maybe a business and, and cars and computers and all of those things are begun by someone who dared to dream. Now, you name it, the chances are that those things originated 
by a person who had the ability to dream. And, and if we demand that decisions be made based solely on currently known facts, then we also have a spiritual problem. If, if all we do is the logical, analytical thinking part of it, then our brain is going to operate a little bit more like a computer in that garbage in, garbage out, and it's going to be very difficult to ever delete anything off the hard drive if you are staying with the analogy. What I mean by that, it's very easy if we deal, deal with nothing but facts to be imprisoned by our past and never be able to really forgive ourselves of things that we know God has forgiven us because we've appropriated his forgiveness the way that this book tells us that we ought to do. And it's going to be difficult for us to get beyond anything that has already been discovered. After all, the definition of faith, Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, there isn't a great deal of analysis in that other than the evidence part. But if faith helps me to understand that there is a dimension to existence that I cannot see with the physical eye, and therefore, it makes it more difficult for me to comprehend with my brain. Then I, I think that's why we're sitting here in a church building this afternoon when millions of people around billions of people around this world have no spiritual considerations whatsoever because they can't see the unseen world. Does that make sense? And Paul is the one who wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.18, We look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. They are temporary in nature. They're earthly in nature. The things that are not seen are those things that are eternal. So Paul says, if you want to boil down Christianity and our relationship to God, here it is. The most important things in life are not things at all. They're that which we cannot see. It is the promise of God. No wonder Paul in our text says that the child of God is saved by hope because that's what we have today. We have that hope. And again, I remind you that the dictionary definition, or at least one part of it, was that, that confident expectation of what is to be. And so if that faith grows in our hearts and lives each day, then that hope will also grow with it. And I don't mean hope in the sense of I close my eyes and just wish for something. That's, that's an immature, childish faith. I'm talking about the kind of faith that can grow because every day you see it, God, God at work in your life. And you see that, that there are many things that cannot be explained except to simply say that was a God thing. You, you understand how that those things that are of greatest value to God's people, like family, and like responsibility, and like integrity, and like building character in our own lives and in, and in the lives of our children. All of those things are things that God's word has placed a high premium on that this world gives hardly a, a passing glance at. But when we dare to dream, that's when we leap into the exciting world of hope, of endless possibility. No wonder Paul said in Romans 3.20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundant, you know the passage, he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Paul says, I just want you for a moment to see the unseen world and to comprehend for a moment, or at least to think about, even if you can't quite comprehend it, what God can do through you, a, a life of unlimited possibility. I think Ephesians 3.20 is one of the greatest victory verses anywhere in the Bible. Obviously, life on, on planet Earth requires both of those things that we've been talking about. It requires cognitive, logical thinking. It requires hoping and dreaming. There has to be a balance of those things if we're going to live our lives as rational individuals. 
Let me give an example of that. Over 100 years ago, a fellow by the name of Jules Verne, if you like to read it all, even if you don't, that name probably sounds familiar. He was a French novelist. And you may remember that his primary forte was that he would spend these nail-biting stories about submarines that, that sailed under the polar ice cap and how that there were spaceships that went to the moon. And, and, and back over 100 years ago, when he first wrote those stories, his stories were just pure fantasy. They were incredibly entertaining, but no one, and I mean no one, took them seriously. And yet you and I know that Jules Verne's fantasies have long since become fact. That's just old school now. Those things that he dreamed up in his imagination are now a reality in our world. Cars and televisions and microwaves and computers that you can hold in your hand. These and a million other marvels would be not existed except for the imagination of people like Jules Verne in this world. So if we are left brain, logical, analytical in our thinking, we ought to thank God every day for people who aren't. Because that's... Both of those things are what makes the world go round. And it was their imaginations and their dreams that moved left brain scientists to build those conveniences that now in 2019 we can't live without. So scientists and engineers, they can crunch the numbers. They can put all the pieces together on an assembly line, but it takes the vision of someone like Jules Verne to actually trigger the process by saying, have you ever thought about it? In the 1960s, there was a social psychologist by the name of Robert Rosenthal, who decided and how these people decide to research these kinds of things, I don't know, but I guess that's because I am left-brained. Rosenthal decided that he wanted to research what he called experimenter bias, B-I-A-S, experimenter bias. He wondered if an experimenter's bias affected the outcome and even the approach of the person who was conducting the experiment. And, and if so, did that in turn affect the results? In other words, he wanted to know, did expectations influence outcomes in these kinds of social experiments? Let me kind of put some teeth into that and some skin on it so that we can better understand. One of Rosenthal's projects involved giving a group of elementary school children a standard IQ test. And some of us are old enough to remember when that was done in 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 a classroom setting, and that's also when reality set in for some of us, but anyway, that's not important. Rosenthal did not grade the test. He just let them believe that he did. What he did was he randomly selected 20% of those people who took that test and told their teachers, now these kids are intellectually superior to the other students in their classes. I doubt if you could get away with that today, but back in that day, he was allowed to do that experiment. And he said, you can expect, to the teachers, he said, you can expect exceptional gains and academic performance from these people, from these kids that, that you would not believe during the school year. And guess what? Those kids significantly outperform the other 80% of the children in their class. Now, most of us are not surprised by that. Because the teacher's expectations were communicated to those children in a number of ways, both verbal and nonverbal, and, and those kids in turn worked to live up to those expectations. In fact, it was Robert Rosenthal who coined the phrase, a self-fulfilled prophecy. That is, if you believe something, you become what you believe. That you can actually make that a reality when you begin to believe something strongly enough. However, it is a sword that cuts both ways, isn't it? Remember Job in Job 3, verse 25, when he said, For the thing that I greatly, as great a man as Job was, 
here was the one minor negative side of Job. He said, that which I greatly feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come upon me. So Job was, was dreading the very worst. And that's why we always say, don't give your kids something to live down to. Be very careful, especially when your children are in that formative age, that you don't talk them down. That is, you don't state negative expectations of them because that's giving them something not to live up to but to live down to, and you know, you know the difference. For instance, I heard of a man who always got in his son's face every time that son would bring home a less-than-perfect report card, and he would shout, you loser, you're going to wind up in prison. And sure enough, that boy is now fulfilling his dad's expectations as a guest of the government. That doesn't surprise any of us. Because we've read this book and we also have enough common sense to know that's the way life works. The bottom line is when you have high hopes and eager expectations, then there are forces that are set in motion that will fulfill those hopes and those expectations. That not only is a psychological principle, I'm submitting to you this afternoon that that's also very much a spiritual principle. So don't mark off as a foolish fanatic the person who says, if you can picture it, you can possess it. Or the person who says, if what the mind of man can, can conceive and the heart of man can believe, then man can achieve. There is some truth to that because of all of those factors that we've been discussing this afternoon. Now, Thomas Edison is, has been described, at least in one of the books that I, biographies that I read about him, as the man who invented the 20th century. Because his invention so significantly changed and revolutionized the way we live life. And I believe if you know anything about what he has accomplished that you would probably would not argue with that. And if I ask you to tell me about old Thomas, I bet the first thing that you would say was he's the guy that invented the light bulb. And that's usually the first thing that comes to mind. And no doubt that 1879 invention put his name on the map and in the encyclopedia. But do you know what? That bulb wasn't worth much. It was too expensive. It was out of reach for everyone except the, the richest people in our country. And besides that, it didn't produce much light, and it didn't last very long at all. I mean, we got LED lights now that will last a decade. Can you imagine having a light and going, oh, that's great. Turn the light on in the living room. It'll last 15 seconds. And that was pretty much what a light bulb did when old Thomas brought it off the workbench. Enter a fellow by the name of William David Coolidge. Coolidge spent seven long years trying to find a filament that would make Edison's light bulb actually usable. And at the time, tungsten was the only known element that could be used as a filament. But watch this. Metallurgical scientists unanimously and authoritatively said that tungsten was not sufficiently malleable. Let me give it to you in cornbread English. What they actually said was, it will never work. But Coolidge continued experimenting anyway with tungsten, and you guessed it, he, he made it work. And when he was asked later how he had succeeded when the expert said that he would never could, he replied, it's because I'm not a metallurgist. If I had been a metallurgist, I would have known that it would never work. What does that say to us? Well, we need to trust our dreams more, and we need to act on them sometimes. Don't slink into a back seat because you're short on training, short on credentials, short on experience. You just keep plugging away at your hopes and at your dreams, and you never know what God can do in and through you. To borrow Winston Churchill's famous five-word speech, never, never, never give up. But it isn't easy to have hope and confidence in the future. And I understand that that's not easy. I understand how that works. That's a part of that 
that civil battle that's going on inside every one of us. Hundreds of hope-smashing experiences will assault us as we walk through life. Life isn't easy, and life isn't always fair either. And that's why it helps to look at some of the case studies in the Bible. I want to spend just a few minutes, and then we're through. Mention two or three people from the Old Testament that understood in, in ways maybe that we never will or maybe that it will take a lifetime of understanding and study and experience to fully understand. For Job is a perfect example of that. Job is a case study in the unfairness of life. Wouldn't you say that that was a fair assessment? He invested years in building what can be described in Job chapter 1 only as a storybook life. I don't think anyone would disagree with that either. I mean, you think about how rich Job was, all the things that he possessed, his, his wonderfully large family that he loved and that he was able to experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And then one, you know the story, one soul-shattering day, he lost it all. He was plunged from prosperity to poverty, from, from happiness to heartache. And I repeat, in one 24-hour period. All of those things were taken away from him. You know how that, that worked. The Bible says it started with a gang of rustlers murdering his hired hands and, and stealing his livestock. And then on the heels of that, this has got to be ten times, a hundred times worse. The Bible says that his children, all ten of them, were killed in a tornado in a windstorm one day. Think about that. One family, one day, ten graves. My heart hurts thinking about it. But that's what Job experienced. And the Bible says that wasn't all. We're not through. Before the sun set, Job came down with the shingles. Well, actually, it was a lot worse than that. And please excuse me for just a moment. This is not dinner table talk. I understand that. But the Bible says that sores broke out all over Job's body from feet to his scalp. They, they festered and they ruptured. And then, and then the worms began to breed in the putrefying flesh. If you can imagine that kind of physical agony. And then adding to his physical agony... His wife badgered him, and his friends blamed him. So in addition to the physical agony, he had all these emotions and this psychological onslaught that was going on. And then venting his misery, the Bible says that he wished that he'd never been born, and he begged God to let him die. And who could really blame him? Who except, of course, his self-righteous so-called friends? He moaned, who can see any hope for me? Here, here we are at really the essence, the premise of our, our study together this afternoon. Job asked that question when he was in the valley, and I mean the lowest valley of life. Is there any hope for me? And then, thankfully, he answered his own question by saying, Are you listening, church? I will hope in him. How can you say that? You don't even have any hired hands anymore. They were all killed by the rustlers. You don't have any flock anymore. All the cattle and all the sheep are gone. All of those were wiped out. You don't have any children anymore. All ten were killed in a 24-hour period. How can you say that you will still hope in him? Isn't that the God that you've been supposedly depending on for your entire life? And Job repeated, I will hope in him. And we can't miss that. He was angry with God. You can see that in the text, but he still trusted God. And after a while, the Bible says his faith was rewarded. Let's skip to the end of this wonderful, powerful story. The Bible says the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. That, of course, is Job chapter 42, verses 10 and verse 12. The bottom line is bad things happen to good people. 
And maybe bad things have happened to you too, despite your commitment to living within the framework of the will of God. And I really wish I could explain it in such a way that would make your hurt go away. I really do, but I can't. But I can plead with you this afternoon to never, ever, ever give up hope and allow that hope to be rested, founded, foursquare on your faith in God. You see, you can't separate faith from hope. The more your faith grows, the more hope you will have residing in your heart. I, and I know that's easy to say and hard to do. And I wouldn't dare diagnose your pain as anything less than the terrible torment that I know that it is. But hope is your only source of strength and your only chance for survival. It is your only grip on God. That certainly was true with Job. And if you're a child of the all-powerful, ever-present God, you have reason to hope because God is still in control. Don't you need to remind yourself of that from time to time? I know I do. At least that's the way Joseph saw it. If you want to turn two-thirds of the way through the book of Genesis and remind yourself of Joseph's story, you remember Joseph's jealous brother sold him into slavery for a shabby sack of silver. And, and when they came face-to-face with Job later on foreign turf, he said to them, this is Genesis 45, verse 8, if you want to check it, Genesis 45, 8, he said to his brothers, remember, who had sold him into slavery after pretending and telling his father that he had died uh, at the claws of a wild animal, Job, I mean, Joseph's response to them was, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow, that's a different take. It was not you. I'm not blaming you. It was, it was God who put me in this place is basically what Joseph is saying. He believed that God could, that God would bring good out of bad. And he was right, of course. I, I think that's the real, if you were to ask me to boil down the story of Joseph into one sentence, it was, that God would still take care of him no matter what happened to him and no matter how many years he spent in prison. And Paul reaffirms that very truth this way in the New Testament. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. That's the New Testament way of saying what Job or Joseph learned all those years ago. Here's another quick example of how hope gives you the edge. The book of Habakkuk gets its name from a usually ignored Old Testament prophet. In fact, I can reflect back over my years of sitting in classrooms and say I never had a class on the book of Habakkuk. But Habakkuk is, is a short little book. It's just a few pages from the end of our Old Testament. Let's blow off the dust from the book of Habakkuk for just a moment and read a few select verses. I'm going to be reading from chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, if you want to turn there. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, and we're almost through. Even Habakkuk says, even the fig trees have no blossoms. Think about what that meant in an agricultural-based society. They were totally dependent upon the crops, whether they produced or not. Our worries are, are nothing compared to theirs, is there? I resodded a side yard trying to kind of clean it up a little bit and uh, I picked the wrong year to do it because if it gets any water on it it's because me putting the sprinkler on it until last night and I went out yesterday afternoon and checked on on the sod and it was pretty brown but then again I like brown so But after that good rain last night, I went out this morning and looked at it, and boy, it had greened up. And I'm thinking, I, 
My problems are, are minuscule compared to Habakkuk's. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. And that's pretty grim reading, isn't it? Until you get to the last 17 words. Habakkuk lived in incredibly hard times, and you need to know that in order to appreciate his words. But he refused to surrender hope. He refused to surrender his trust in God. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation were his parting words. So let's not miss the message this afternoon. God trusting, faith abiding hope can turn your calamity into tranquility. Paul put in a good word for hope as well. One version of Romans 5, 3, and 5 reads like this. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they are good for us. They help us learn to be patient, and patience develops strength of character in us and helps us trust God more each time we use it until finally our hope and faith are strong and steady. One more thing before I close this lesson. God had something in mind when he spoke, something specific in mind when he spoke of hope. He didn't promise exemption from affliction. He did not promise an easy life to his people in either testament. But he did promise He did promise a resurrection. He did promise eternal life. And this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. 1 John 2, verse 25. Or as Peter stated in 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 and 4, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope. What does that mean, Peter? It means our hope was dead. But now it is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And as we noted earlier, sometimes, maybe lots of times, it's hard to hope. Hard but not impossible. Because of Jesus, hope is always within reach of any one of us. And maybe this afternoon... You're at a low place in your life. You're down and out. You're having a hard time living today, facing tomorrow. You're plagued by your past. You may be plagued by some physical pain. I don't know. But please let Jesus help. He wants to. He's certainly qualified, and he will. I think the greatest verses in the New Testament have to be, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will, I will give you rest. Let Jesus help, because you can find your hope in him. Hope, which the Hebrews writer says in chapter 6, verse 19, is the anchor of the soul. You need an anchor in your life right now. It is available to you only through Jesus Christ while we stand, while we sing.